Good morning, King's Chapel. Glad you're here with us. What I will do this morning is we're in John chapter 11 together. John chapter 11, uh, our series of an exposition of the gospel according to John, the invisible made visible, verse by verse, keeping in its context first and then bringing application. Um, We call it the invisible made visible, the eternal God put on humanity, revealed himself to us, identified with us, and ultimately died for us, and his name is Jesus. So I will read John chapter 11, verses 1 through 27, then we'll dismiss uh, children for children's church. John chapter 11. Verse 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi... The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So that you may believe, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Mary, uh, excuse me, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. May God add a blessing to the reading of his sacred holy word this morning. So, kids, you're dismissed. You can go to Children's Church. We're in John 11 together. (laughs) This morning, we're turning our attention to the miraculous sign uh, of raising Lazarus from the dead. And I use the word sign, miraculous sign, purposely. And I hope, I hope you've been here walking with us through this gospel account. You understand what a sign is. Many times in John, a sign is pointing to his miracles. And in John chapter 20, in his purpose statement, we see what the signs are for. Jesus did many other signs... In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in his book, but John here chose what was written in his book, signs that he's pointing to, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So John talks about signs, and many theologians throughout the years have pointed out that there are seven major big signs that Jesus did pointing to his personhood so that we may come to believe, have life in his name, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing, having life in his name. Seven of them. There are, I think there are more, but there's seven big ones. I just want to remind you what they are this morning. The miracle or sign 
miracle, number one, was the turning of water into wine in the marriage of Canaan. Chapter 2, Jesus turns the water, fills the water pots, uh, he turns the water into wine, and it says that he manifested his glory. Okay, that's important. He manifested his glory and that many of his disciples had come to know him. It was the first sign that's been done. Sign miracle number two, he heals an official son. We don't know exactly who he is, but he finds out that Jesus is around, chapter four, and he says, my son is sick, and Jesus announces, go, your son will live. And he speaks, and the boy at that hour gets healed, and the scriptures tell us that even his household had come to faith by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sign miracle number three was the healing of the pool of Bethsaida in chapter five. Superstition, if you remember, was told in that day that if you get into the pool, the first one into the pool, when the angel comes down and stirs the water, you'll be healed. There was many invalids and paraplytic people there. Jesus walks up to the man, do you want to be healed? He's like, no one put me in the water. Jesus says, pick up your mat and go home. Healed. Sign miracle number four is the feeding of 5,000. 5,000 men plus women and children with, with five small loaves and two fish. A sign pointing to who Jesus is. Miracle, a sign number five. Jesus walking on the water. There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus just comes trotting along while his disciples are trying to get to the other side. And he is seen and brought into the boat. And they reach their destination. Sign miracle number six. A man born from his mother's womb, blind. And Jesus says, Come here, rub some mud in his eye, go down to the pool of Siloam and wash and you will receive your sight. And guess what? He does. That's number six. Number seven is our text. Number seven is the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Again, a sign pointing not just to that miracle, but to who Jesus is. Chapter 11. Let me just set the stage real quickly. We were in chapter 10. It was the Feast of Dedication. It was around Christmas, around December. It was wintertime. They were celebrating Hanukkah, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And at the end of that time, Jesus had ended his public ministry. The Jewish people and the religious leaders were angry with him. And he goes northeast over the Jordan a couple of days where John the Baptist had first started baptizing people. And as Jesus goes up, it's now, we don't know exactly when, say January, February, spring is coming and Passover season is coming. This will be the last time Jesus comes into Jerusalem, that Passover, we'll pick up in chapter 13, he'll come to Jerusalem one last time in Passover to be crucified, so we're close to the crucifixion. I believe that Jesus went northeast over the Jordan and if you read the other gospel accounts, there was a time in which he brought his disciples closer and began to minister to them and get them ready for his crucifixion. And while he is there, spring is coming, he is prepping them for his crucifixion, he gets a word, a, a, a members of, of the, not members of the family, but the family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, sends word to Jesus where he is that they need some help. That they need some help. And now we'll look at our text. We're going we're gonna to look at this text for three weeks. Okay, but we're going to look at this text. We're going to go through verse 27, kind of pick up again there next week, under five headings. Okay, I did that because I'm usually doing three, and I want you to know that I can go more than three. It's five today. I'm going to hit some of them quickly, so we won't be here all day, but there's five of them today. Um, the problem, we'll see what the problem is, is you see the purpose uh, the postponement, the predicament, and then the promise. And next week, we'll pick up with the promise again. And we're just going to walk through this text over the next couple of weeks. So that's where we are. So look at the problem. You know, no matter how much technology we gain, no matter how much medical insight we have, uh, and I love technology, and I mentioned in the first service, uh, Ricky and I, you know, he loves technology, and he helps me a lot, believe me. Um, and it's just, it's just some cool things what can happen in technology. Medical, as many of you know, I had a hip replacement, a walk in the same day. It's just unbelievable. But there's one thing we can count on, all of us. We're all going to get sick at some point, and death traps all of us. No matter what technology we get, no matter how much medical science improves, that's one thing that we cannot avoid will be illness and death. It'll strike some point in our life. In fact, the Bible teaches us that once Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, way back when, sin, death, 
entered into our human experience because of their sin and rebellion. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death spread through sin, death spread through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So the penalty of sin is death, and it spread to all of us. And that's why we see, even though Jesus loved them, they are in a problem, problem that we all face. Lazarus is sick. Chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Short message, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is ill. Now, Bethany, that, this Bethany, what they're talking about where they lived, was about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It was on the east side of the Mount of Olives, um, not very far from Jerusalem, for, but about probably, we don't know exactly, but probably two or three days probably at least away from where Jesus was, which was up over the, uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. So, Bethany, where they live, is outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is a few days away, and he gets a word, and the word is that Lazarus is sick. Now, this family is the first time this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, is mentioned in the gospel according to John. But if you read the gospel according to Luke, we know this family, and some of you know this famous story, when Jesus goes to their home in Bethany, and he's there with them. Mary is at the feet of Jesus, listening in, drinking in, his teaching and whatever he was doing at the moment, probably doing some teaching and just loving up that family. And Martha was in the kitchen serving. Some of you can relate to that. Some of you like to sit. Some of you like to serve. Some of you like to listen. Some of you like to do things. And Martha gets a little annoyed and says to Jesus, man, can you tell my sister to get up and help me out? And Jesus lovingly and lightly says, you know what? Mary's chosen what she's chosen. And I think it's more of the complaint than it is that who chose to, to serve and not serve. But Jesus says that to her. And we see Mary here as well. Look at verse 2. Mary, the one who sits by Jesus' feet. We see in verse 2, it was Mary, it says, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, just so you know, that doesn't happen until chapter 12. So what John is doing, he's saying she's the one. We're going to get to that soon, but, but he's, I don't know if he's expecting people to know that, but he's saying she's the one that's going to, we're going to read chapter 12, anoint Jesus with a very, very expensive perfume. This family probably had some wealth, they had messengers, they had perfume that was expensive, and we see that here. John just puts it in there, and I don't think John does it for, by accident. I think it's there for a reason, okay? And we'll get to that in a second. So he puts it, the one whom wiped his hair, his feet with her hair. Also notice the request. The one whom you love is ill. No, no request to come and help. There's humility. There's dependency. She's, she's looking for Jesus for help. But she doesn't say, come quickly. And why is that? I, I think it's because they understood or at least assumed that once Jesus finds out that Lazarus, the one whom he loves, is ill, Jesus will drop what he's doing and go to see Lazarus. I mean, he has the power. She said, you know, he's ill, can you come? There's a sense where you can come and do something about this. And I think they just assumed that he would drop what he's doing and come. And, and because Jesus has the ability to, to fix the problem, he'll do what he can because that's what love means. Do what you can. And I, and I think that's a good question for us today. Is that, is that a good assumption for us to make? Whether we verbalize it or internalize it, when we're faced with stress and difficulty and hardship, do we assume that because God has the power, should we assume and believe that if God loves me, he'll not let me hurt like this? He'll come and fix it? We did a summer series called Did God Really Say That? And we asked the question, you know, did bad things happen to good people? And the other one was, does God want me happy, healthy, and wealthy? And the, and the answer was no, not in that sense, not at all. He never said that, Lord, whom you love is ill. We don't like pain. 
We don't like difficulty. I know I don't. We rather enjoy pleasures and comfort, lots of it. But we're never told that we're immunized when we become followers of Jesus Christ. Here is someone whom he loved who is ill. He's sick. He's dying. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And this message that was sent, and the reason Jesus gives for the sickness or him not going, we'll see that in a moment, forces, I think, us to rethink and challenge our worldview, our, our linear thinking, this, this simplistic notion that if we come and become a follower of Jesus or if we try to do the right thing and we do the right thing, we do good things, that bad things are not going to happen into our lives. But that's just not true. And Jesus turns around and says to them, listen to me, I, I am saying to you things aren't always easy. But we need to realize, and I think they needed to realize that if we belong to him, suffering may come into our life, but God has plans and purposes for what he's doing in our life and the lives of the people who love him and serve him, even when trouble comes. I, I think he's, we'll see this more. He's trying to get them off of the worldly things and into a, a divine perspective. But if we're honest, let's be honest for a moment. If we're honest, when we are in pain, it leaves us puzzled. When we are wounded, we, we tend to waver in our faith. When we are weeping, there's, there's a wandering of, of what's going on. And the message that was sent to Jesus tells us and informs us even that Jesus understands. Jesus is fully God, but he is fully human. And Jesus understands when the words come across the phone, a call, someone you love is ill or you yourself are ill. He has Heard that himself. He understands. He knows. He knows those words. He knows the questions that must fly around our heads when we're not sure about the future. He understands that. See, nothing happens to us. No message can come to us that our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ hasn't been there before. He's there. He knows. And look at our text. John is making it clear that this text, everything that's going on is about love. I need you to see that this morning. Now, now, not what we think love is, but what God says love truly is. Verse 2. Again, although it has not happened yet, John wants to see, I mean, he puts right at the beginning of this passage, it was Mary, the one who was at the feet of Jesus, the one who Jesus was loving and caring, the one who was devoted to Jesus. You see this love in chapter 2, excuse me, in verse 2. And then look at verse 3. The one in whom you love is ill. There's love again. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister in Lazarus. Verse 36. As Jesus wept, the Jews said, see how he loved them. Love, love, love all over the place. Mary and Martha are hurting. Lazarus is sick and dying. But I want you to see that this miracle is not just simply a great miraculous performance so everybody can applaud God is showing Mary and Martha and Lazarus and everyone in that day and us today what love is and how love operates and what love does according to God. Maybe not according to the world, but according to God so that we can trust him. And the, and the message of love, of, of God's love, is countercultural to, our, to, the, to the norms of today. This kind of love that God is showing us through this account can only be understood and received, I believe, if the love of Christ is in us through the power of his Holy Spirit living in us because self-love, without the work of God, self-love keeps us from seeing and treasuring and, 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 and uh, savoring the love of God because we're too busy loving oneself. I mean, Jesus said you cannot serve Two masters, you cannot worship two things. You either hate one, love the other, or you despise one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Serve money or, or any other thing. I, I, at the context is money, but anything higher worship is called idolatry. As this narrative unfolds, we'll notice that he meets the sisters, he, 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 he gets involved and he gently brings them to the place of seeing his glory, his love, and what's best for them. The problem is sickness that leads to death. But the purpose may be surprising to you. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Okay, verse 4, Jesus is not reassuring them that Lazarus is not going to die. He's actually going to die. He's assuring them that although Lazarus will die, it's not the final say. That is not the final matter. And although he's in this arduous predicament, there's a divinely intended purpose. Final word is not death. It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. That God may be glorified in it. But notice what it says. Notice what it says. I want you, I want you to see this. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Now, if it just stopped there, fine. But it doesn't. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay? It doesn't just say to, to glorify God, the infinite value and love and worship and majesty of God. It says that all that takes place through through, preeminently in, right now in this text, in the Son, through the Son, that the Son may be glorified. The Son will, will bring glory to Himself. That's what He's saying here. John 5, He said the same thing. That the, those who love and honor and worship the Son should love and honor and worship the Father. And the Father, love and honor the Father, love and honor and worship the Son. If you remember John's prologue, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word dwelt among us, Became flesh and dwelt among us, became man, took on flesh, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The unique Son of God. Let me, let me tell you what everyone in that day understood this to mean. Monotheistic, worshiping one God, just like us. One God, creator, sustainer, reigning ruler of the universe. There's one God. And that God, that Yahweh, that Old Testament God that the Old Testament Jews had their Bibles, understood Isaiah 42, 8, the transcendency, the otherness, holiness of God. This is what Isaiah 42, 8 says in their Bible and our Bible. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory, my infinite value, my, my incalculable worth, I will give to no one. My praise will go to no one. So when it says in our text that this God, this Yahweh, this, this, this one in his incalculable value and worth and praise and glory shares it with no one but is revealed through the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it only means one thing. No matter what the cults may say, one God, three persons, we see it right here, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, one essence, divine. That's what Jesus is saying. That is what they are to understand. That is what we are understand. understand. And Jesus, out of his own lips, is saying, I and the Father are one all over again. John makes much of this in his gospel account, and so will I. He's constantly pointing back to the divinity, the, the divine nature of the Son. And look what Jesus says. I love you, Mary and Lazarus. I love you. I love you very much. And what I'm about to do is show you my love in my purpose. And my purpose in showing you my love is that you will see my glory. Catch that. See my glory. What he's saying about love, love for you, love for me, love for the sisters, love for Lazarus, is that if we embrace, trust, love, treasure, the all-compassing glory of God as the highest and best and supreme being in the universe, we will experience love. That's not what the world will tell you. Verse 14, Jesus tells them that Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm not there so that you may believe. In uh, chapter 11, verse 40, same thing. He tells Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And what you need to see is believing in Christ, trusting in Christ, yielding in Christ, coming to Christ, is to experience the love of Christ, and it culminates in the glory of Christ. You need to see that. That's what this passage is all about. Love, glory of Christ. It was John Piper who wrote this. What we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? The answer of this text is clear, John 11. A revelation to your soul an unveiling, a, 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 a seeing, 
with your soul the glory of God, seeing and admiring and marveling at and savoring in the glory of God in Jesus Christ, end quote. This passage is not primarily or predominantly about illness and death, about Lazarus. He's going to die. And you know what? He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to die again. How's that for fun? <laughs> you know, Jesus couldn't, well, you know, you know, we already know the story. He rises from the dead. I'm like, the poor guy's got to die twice. And they want to kill him after this as well. Dying cannot be fun, I'm sure. And yet God says, I have a purpose. My purpose is to glorify. Same thing in chapter 9 when he heals the man who was born blind. It says that, that the works of God may be manifested so they may see the things of God, worship God, and come to God in his majesty, in his infinite worth, and worship him as the one true God. That's the purpose. You got the problem, he's dying, you got the purpose, his glory, and look at the postponement. Jesus will postpone on purpose Lazarus to, so that Lazarus can die. He'll choose to allow Lazarus to die. And you can see it in verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha, there's a love again, and her sister Lazarus. Verse 6, the first word in your text, in your Bible, if you have a Bible open, I, I know I put the, screen, uh, the words on the screen, but really bring your own Bible. We have Bibles in the back, but yours to keep if you don't have one. Verse 6. So, you should have so, therefore. If there's nothing in there that points back to verse 5, it's a bad translation. So. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. The one whom you love is ill. Okay, I'm going to stay now on purpose for two more days. That's what the text says. Feel that. The one you love is sick. Come, let's go. We got we to get there. We got to get there. I'm going to stay two more days. When someone's sick and someone calls you and need help, what do you do? Drop what you're doing, right? Not Jesus. Not Jesus. I'm going to wait. It may not feel like love to you, but it's love to, uh, to them. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait two more days. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to drop everything. I'm just going to wait. The one who's sick. The motivation, need to see this, the motivation for Jesus to stay two days longer is motivated by love. That's what verse 5 and 6 says. It's motivated by love. Love, glory is worth the wait. And sometimes it's the only way that God can get our hearts to the place where we will see his love, we will receive his love, we will recognize his glory when we have to wait. Now this text is not done in a vacuum. I'll tell you that right now. Jesus tells the messengers this illness is not unto death. It's for the glory of God. So now the messengers know. And now the messengers take the message to Mary and Martha. Now they know. And the disciples that are there, they know. And I love that. I love the way Jesus just openly declares that. That should be an encouragement to us. Because no matter what we're going through, no matter what your circumstance, no matter what the difficulties and hardship you may be going through right now, it's not the final word for you either. God is working all things out for his glory. For our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8. It was Jonathan Edwards, great theologian, pastor, said that the object of all things is God's glory. And when God gets his glory, his people get their joy. It's not done in a vacuum. Let that be an encouragement to you. Number two, Jesus was not in a hurry. Jesus did not run off to see his friends. And if you've ever been involved in tragedy and difficulties and hardship, and some of you have, some of you may be going through it right now, but those of you who have come to the other side of it, you've already seen some of the things that God did and is doing and has done and continues to do through the hardship and difficulties that you've been through. You can look back and you can see that. And we can say, as, as I said to the first service, God is always late because God's always on time. You know? Because he's late for us, but he's always on time. And God wants, to have, wants us to have a divine perspective, a heavenly perspective. He's always late because he's always on time. But Lord, don't you love them? He says he loves them very much in this text. All over, love all over. You see the intimacy and love that Jesus has for them. What I love about this text, and I said this too, um, is the text, although you see devotion in chapter, uh, verse 2 of Martha, but what you read about in this text is how much Jesus loved them. And I just want to just marvel in that for a moment. 
my love for Jesus is fickle. My love for Jesus wavers. My love for Jesus is not in any way something I'm hoping in, but I am trusting in his love for me. And that's what the passage talks about, how much he loved them. That is not a fickle love. That is I got you love. And that's what this text is talking about, the love. The love, the love, the love. And you know what? We request God, intervene, sick, drop everything, come now. And then when that doesn't happen, we wonder, does God really love me? And what this text is telling us, not only does he love me, he's not responding right now because he loves you. Sometimes it's wait. And wait means love. It's because he loves you. And you know what? We get frustrated because we are here on, we're trapped in time and space when God is eternal. and We don't, we don't understand that his perfect timing, he's in charge. He has authority. He is sovereign. And he, I think this text teaches us he's not denying the pain. We'll see Jesus weep and suffer with them. But he wants us to see it from his perspective so that we could focus our attention in the midst of this on Christ, his glory, his honor, his dignity, his praise. And when people get that right, when people get that right, and I know sometimes it wavers in the middle of trials and difficulties, I get that. But when we get that right, we have a peace, we have a joy. We, we sung about that. You know, there's, there, is, there is rest in, in God because God's in control we can rest and what we see here is how Jesus meets Mary and Martha and he brings them to the place through suffering to the place of seeing his glory okay so let's move on look at the predicament verse 7 then after this he said to his disciples let us go to Judea again the disciples said to him Rabbi the Jews are just now trying to stone you are you going there again Jesus answered them are there not 12 hours in a day Oh, that's all on day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So they had this thing of 12 hours, day and night. It was kind of the way the day was broken up. And he's like, look, when it's light out, we're working. There are things that my father wants me to do. As you could see, you won't stumble. And while it's still light, there are still things for me to do. I'm going to the cross. I will be crucified. But meanwhile, it's light time. We need to move in the light. I know they want to kill me, but you know what? The Father has things for me to do. We need to press on while it's still light. I am the light of the world, remember? Anyone who follows me will walk, not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So walk with me. You're safe in the light as long as you come. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Notice with me, notice with me, our friend. Do you see that? On the line out in your Bible, our friend. Our friend. Corporate. Disciples have probably been to his home. It's our friend. You know, the guy that we love, the guy that we had fun with and, and you know, we played cards with, whatever we did. We we're, we're, we're had fun. Our friend. But notice what he says. I go to awaken him. Our friend is sick, dead. I will go and awaken him. It's not a joint effort. We are not the resurrection and the life, only Jesus is. But he brings his disciples along with him. He says, come on, let's go visit a friend. I will awaken him. Verse 12, disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover, he'll wake up. Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a nap, resting. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go. I can see it now, right? Let us go that we may die with him. The Jews want to kill him. We're going back there. He said we're going back. Let's go back. Let's go back. We'll die with him. Good old Thomas. The one that was frightened and locked in the room and saying, I won't believe anything, doubting Thomas, until I see his hands and his feet. Don't tell me anything. I don't believe it. And yet we see him here, what? Ready to take on the world. Frightened Thomas, undoubting Thomas, conquering Thomas. I want to take on the world. Who's that remind you of? You. Look in the mirror. It's both of us, Right? <laughs> Someday, let's go, man. We're going to go. And someday, like, I'm afraid, right? That's, that's Thomas. That's us. Verse 17. When Jesus comes, he finds that Lazarus has already been in dead. How many days? Four. I like the King James Bible. He stinketh. Jesus using a metaphor for sleep. Obviously, in the New Testament, many times they have fallen asleep. He's talking about death. But it's sleeping. It's resting. It's here in the, in, in the, in the uh, arms of Christ. Now, the four days there is for a reason. Okay, 
We may never heard that, never heard this before, but there was a superstitious belief in that day. Jesus is not saying it's true. But John puts it in there on purpose because in that day there are many people believe that when someone dies, their spirit hovered over them for three days. Once the body began to decompose, the spirit would leave. I don't believe Jesus believed any of that nonsense. Actually, the scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is not absent from the body within 72 hours. It doesn't say that. It's immediate into the presence of God. But I think John wants to make it clear, Jesus wants to make it clear, and waited, and showed up on the fourth day to put everything to rest. Whether it's superstitious beliefs or whatever it may be, it's four days later. Decomposing has begun. He's not validating their belief, but he's dispelling the nonsense. Okay? Lazarus was dead. Soul and spirit had gone. Even in their superstitious beliefs, four days, it's over. And look what he says. I am glad. You see what he says? I am glad that I was not there. Doesn't say I'm glad he's dead. He says I'm glad I am not there. The word is rejoice. What is he rejoicing in? Because he's ready to do something. He's ready to reveal his glory to his disciples, which says that, they, that he hopes that they will put their faith in him. You see that? I'm, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Something's going to happen. And, and it's interesting, that word believe, it, it, the tense of that verb is interesting because it, it basically says come to believe. And, and, and I've read a bunch of commentaries on that. What is, it's almost as if they're not believers, that they come to believe. But they're disciples of Jesus. So I, I, I take it to mean that, that they can come to believe more and more and more. We saw that last week, the two verbs, come to believe, come to keep on believing. I think, I think that's kind of the flavor here that he's saying, listen, I want you to see, I know you're following me, I know you've been with me all these years, these three years or so, and now I want you to have greater faith and see greater love and greater glory. And Jesus says, I'm not there when he died, I rejoice, because you're going to see the ultimate reality, my glory, and through it, believe in me. And the most important decision you will ever make is to believe and experience my love as you see my glory. And I thought, what a difference that would be. What a difference it would be for us if in our arduous, difficult trials and hardships, if we truly believed that we experienced the love of God through the clinging and treasuring of the glory of God, the majesty of God, and treasuring him in the midst of suffering, what would that do to our perspective when we suffer? I think it would change radically for me that God's love is being expressed, God's love is being um, received as we see God's glory and we treasure him above all earthly treasures. That is not what the world will tell you what love is. But that's what's happening here. Notice Jesus did not say, I'm glad he's dead. He said, I I want you to come to believe. I want you to see. So we see the problem. There's illness. He's dying. The purpose is for his glory. The postponement is on purpose because he wants to show them his love through his postponement. And then we see the predicament they're in. And now finally look at the promise, verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. We talked about that. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard, busybody Martha, that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. She couldn't wait. But Mary, where'd she say? At the house. Martha said to Jesus, and some of you going, yeah, I'm definitely Martha. And some of you going, yeah, I'm definitely Mary, right? Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, here's your promise, first one, your brother will rise again. Martha, right on cue, ran out to meet Jesus. She, she couldn't sit still, got a bunch of questions. She asked, Lord, almost a complaint, if only, Lord, you were here, my brother would not be dead. In other words, you have the power to heal my brother, but it's too late. And what you see is a mixture of words. If you were here, something would have changed. So there's, there's, there's this kind of like grief, I wish you were here, and there's this kind of faith, there's something you can do. And you see this, this, this conversation he's having with Martha. Jump down if you can to verse 32. I just want to point this out before we close. Uh, that Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. 
She fell at his feet saying the same thing, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And as we'll see next week, Jesus takes these two women, busy Martha, Mary at the feet, and, and, and speaks to them in different ways and loves them specially each other. I mean, you see, Martha's busy, I need answers. And Jesus speaks to her and gives her answers. Mary, on the other hand, doesn't want to, just wants the presence of Jesus. And he says nothing to her, he just weeps with her. And I just think that is so cool that Jesus deals with each of them individually. And he recognizes that in their different personalities, they grieve, they come to believe, they mourn differently, and very specifically respects them and loves these women and brings them to the place of seeing him. It's awesome. And we'll look at more of that next week. And she says, if only you had been here. We, 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 we've been down that, right? We've been down that road. Lord, if you only had done this, if you only have done this, if, if only this didn't happen, if only I made this decision, and on and on and on we go, and we question ourselves. Sometimes we want to blame God. Sometimes we want to blame ourselves. And the bottom line is we are where we are at the moment we are at. And God is saying, get your eyes off your circumstances. Get your eyes upon me. And here's the problem, family. It's like walking into a movie theater, not knowing anything about the film, watching the first five minutes, getting up and declaring it junk when you have no idea what the story's about. You have no idea what the conclusion is. Sometimes we judge God that way. Sometimes we're declaring, you have no idea what you're doing. The whole universe, I don't see how any good can come from this, and we check out. Don't do that. He's going to take Mary and Martha. Though they see a tomb, they see a dead body, they see illness and brokenness and death, he is going to bring them to the place not... He's going to bring them to the place not of just consoling them. He's not going to just come and love them and console them. Oh, everything will be okay. What Jesus is going to do and I want it to do for us is preach himself. Show himself of who he is. So that they could find rest in him. Not just the fact that he there's going to be a resurrection, but that he is the resurrection. That's where they're getting to that place. Now, just so you know, the resurrection um, in that day, there was arguments between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were, you see, sad, you see. Uh, the, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, as did Martha, but they believed in the resurrection on the last day, that on the last day there's going to be a resurrection, not in the middle of history. That's why she says to him, you know, I, I know he'll rise again, verse 24. I know he will on the last day. And Jesus wants to move her out of the abstract from a, a, a distant future thing to personal trust in himself right there and right now to see his glory that, that, that moment. Verse 24, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, another promise, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Again, we've seen this over and over again. The word I am, ego am I, pointing back to God's self-disclosure to Moses in the burning bush. It is the self-existent, eternal God revealing himself. Jesus picks up the I am and says, I am, without beginning, without end, the resurrection and life is in me. Jesus is not explaining to her that, you know, I, I can do the works of God and, and, and by somebody else's power or simply has authority over life with some sort of granted power. That's not what he's saying. I am. He is resurrection and life. There is no life apart from Christ no resurrecting, conquering death apart from Christ. So you must be in him and he must be in you in order to receive the gift of resurrection and life. So Lazarus, resurrection was a sign not merely of a human in tune with the power of God. It was a sign that Jesus was and is the son of God, the one with overcoming power, death overcoming power. And Jesus said, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Death in this world is just a portal into eternal life. Sometimes we talk about this place being the land of the living and we go to the land of the dead. Opposite. 
This is the land of the dead. This is the land of the dying. For Christians, we step into the land of the living. I am the resurrection and the life. And he says to her and he says to us, do you believe this? And Martha's starting to see. Even though she's tired and she's hurting and she's grieving. She says, yes, look at verse 27, isn't that beautiful? He's just bringing her to this place. We'll look more next week. Yes, Lord, she says. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. I hope that sounds so familiar to you by now. I hope it sounds so familiar. Yes, I believe, Lord Christ, Son of God, coming into the world. That's what John's been about. Jesus kept saying, the one the Father sent me so that you know that he sent me. I do the works and words because uh, to show you that he sent me. John 20, the, the, the purpose verse. These things, these signs are written so that you may believe what? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing, having life in his name. It begins where it ends. It ends where it begins. Signs are pointing to who Jesus is. He's moving them and us along to the place of seeing his glory and experiencing his love, even through hardship. And, And the problem we face this morning, in our natural selves, apart from the work of God, we think that love is self reliant and self protection. And we do it by seeking our own glory, not seeking his glory. We, we, by looking good, our own glory, and rather than his glory. But when God comes along and says, do you want to know true love? Do you want to experience ultimate reality? Do you want resurrected life? Then seek me. Seek my glory. Whenever he is in himself, whenever Christ comes in his full we believe and trust in his full person as the one, the king, the ruler, the reign, the son of God, God himself, and we let him be who he says he is, that's when people rise from the dead. Dead in their sin to life eternal. That's when you come alive. That's when the broken parts come together. That's when decay stops. The glory of God. Now, I want to close by reading something. You may be thinking, okay, well, The glory of God, the love of God. We see this in tragedy and difficulty and hardship. God is showing us his love by by waiting, by by it looks like, not the way I see love, but he wants to show me his glory. He's waiting so that I get to the place where I see his glory. And and what you're saying is, that's exactly what I need, is to see his glory and understand and experience his love through that. How does that happen? Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, by communicating himself to their hearts. And in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than those who only see it. His glory then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies this idea of God's glory Glorifies God so much as he that testifies, doesn't glorify it so much as he that testifies also his delight in it. Okay? What he's saying is, family, what we need more than anything is to understand that the love of God seen in the glory of God. That when we see the incalculable worth and value and worship and treasure Christ above all earthly treasures. We experience love like we've never experienced love and the joy that we have brings it to consummation in it, in the worship of God. We will see Jesus bring him that to the place where he reveals his glory and reveals his love to them by revealing himself that they may come to faith in him. Therefore, if God loves us the way the Bible says he does, then he gives us what's best for us. And what's best for us is the seeing, the treasuring, and embracing of the glory of God in himself. So therefore, demanding us to praise and worship him is for our good and his glory. Do you understand that? Let me read a passage to you. 
And with this, I'll close. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You see, all right, glory, love. We see all that. We'll see this in the resurrection. We'll see this in, in John 11. But where is the pinnacle? Where do we see the greatest love and the greatest glory of God? I will tell you. I'm glad you asked. In this case, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, those who have not come to faith in Christ, to keep them from seeing the light, the beauty, the penetrating work, light of of the gospel, the good news, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory, the incalculable worth of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what this communion table is all about. It is about the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus on the cross in Calvary, at Calvary's Hill where Jesus expressed to us the greatest love he could show us, that while we were still sin, as Christ died for us, and his body was put on a Roman cross and hung outside of Jerusalem, outside the gate, where he gave himself for us, dying in our place, bearing the wrath of God for us, and giving us eternal life. We give him our sin, he gives us forgiveness. We give him our shame, he gives us his righteousness. That's what this table is. Jesus himself, through the power of his spirit, is calling his children to the table so they can remember his broken body. That's what the bread is. Remember his blood that was shed. That's what the cup is. That's where the beauty and glory has manifested greatly, supremely on this earth is on the cross. If you're a child of God, we invite you. Jesus invites you to come to the table. The band's gonna play. We're gonna confess sin quietly in your seat. Then we're gonna repent of sin means to turn from a desire not to do it again. We're going to confess, we're going to repent, the band's going to play, and then when you're ready, you're going to come up and you're going to celebrate, because we don't want to stay there. The tomb is empty, Christ is risen, and we're going to celebrate the broken body and the blood that was shed, and you can come and take of the bread and take of the cup. If you're not a Christian, then just sit, pray, sing, meet with me, any other pastors, uh, Dave who's singing, Ricky on the drums, Chris who did announcements, or anybody else uh, that's in leadership here, or uh, we'd love to talk to you about Christ, and we'd love to tell you that he is who he says he is. So let, let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Thank you that we find rest and peace in him. Thank you, Lord, that you have given your precious son as a gift to us, his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. And someday, Lord, we will too rise with him. And Lord, we can have hope in you, Lord. So we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, as we partake of the cup, as we partake of the bread and the cup, Lord, you would help us to confess, you help us and grant us repentance, and Lord, help us to celebrate the wonder and beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. We want to see him, treasure him, so we can experience love as never before. Father, help us to understand that and give ourselves completely to you, treasuring you above everything. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name.